I think on some level, there needs to be a reckoning about the ways in which the system of philanthropy itself is completely involved in a system of this kind of wealth accumulation and a prioritization of capitalism over certain aspirations of democracy. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pocoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community in general. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Lila Corwin-Berman. Lila is a professor of history at Temple University, where she holds the Murray Friedman Chair of American Jewish History and directs the Feinstein Center for American Jewish History. She is the author of the just-out book, The American Jewish Philanthropic Complex, The History of a Multi-Billion Dollar Institution. Her other books are Metropolitan Jews, Politics, Race and Religion in Post-War Detroit, and Speaking of Jews, Rabbis, Intellectuals and the Creation of an American Public Identity. Her articles have appeared in the Washington Post, The Forward, and several scholarly journals. In this conversation, we spoke mostly about her new book, about the intersection between philanthropy and politics, and about philanthropy's inherent power dynamics and the efforts to democratize the philanthropic process. As you will see in the conversation, we often disagreed, and sometimes very sharply, which made the conversation more fun and livelier. Ultimately, however, we're both committed in our divergent ways to make philanthropy and the community better. Take a listen. So, Laila, thank you for being here and talking about this intriguing new book and your research with me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much. Um, you tackled on a touchy issue, right? Jews and money, Jews and power. Yes, <laughs> you know, absolutely. And, um, you know, while I was working on it and occasionally publishing things in the forward and other press outlets, um, I, I did from time to time get people pretty sternly telling me, you know, you, you can write about what you want. You could write about stuff with Israel, with anti-Zionism, with BDS, any, you know, flashing hot topic. Just don't please don't write about Jews and money. And, you know, there were points when it, that it seemed like that was maybe the right approach, like things are scary and maybe you shouldn't do this. And there were times when I heard that and I thought, no, this really means that this is a topic that needs to be explored. But yeah, it's, it's touchy and it's difficult and it has to be done with uh, sensitivity and rigor, I think. Yeah, and I think that anti-Semites never need an excuse, right? Correct. If they want to be anti-Semitic, they, they don't need your book to, or your articles to have a conspiracy theory that we control the world. Right. Um, so, so walk us through the main arguments of your book, the main line of thought that, sure. that got you to, to write it and, to, and what did you find out writing it, etc. Sure, absolutely. 
So I'll say the way I got into this topic is I was finishing a book about Jews um, leaving cities after World War II and the kinds of political shifts that happened in that period as many Jews in the United States moved to suburbs. And I was honestly looking for a footnote because I had noticed that as a lot of Jews, I was focusing on Detroit, as a lot of Jews left the city but continued to feel an attachment to the city, one way that that attachment manifested was through philanthropy, two initiatives that were happening in the city. And I just wanted to footnote the book that had given a kind of overview of this structure of American Jewish philanthropy and how important it was, and that this was not at all odd, that Jews in the period I was talking about, I think it was about the 1970s, um, would be working through philanthropy to express their attachment. And I couldn't find the book I wanted. I found lots of institutional histories and I found lots of social scientific research about Jewish giving patterns, but I wanted the book that explored the kind of structural history of American Jewish philanthropy. And, you know, as I wasn't coming up with what I wanted, I realized I was at the same time starting to imagine what that history would have to look like, the kinds of archives it would have to look at, the sources it would need to read. And I discovered that this was intellectually very compelling to me because I realized that philanthropy was really one of the most significant ways that American Jews intersected with the policies and laws of the American state. And this seemed really important to me that through their philanthropic behavior, Jews, not just as individuals, but as a collective, um, became legible, visible to American state bodies like courts and revenue departments. And also through philanthropy, American Jews gained some sense of ownership, of investment in the workings of the American state. And this was an exciting way for me to think about American Jewish history, I think, in a way that was quite different from many other inquiries into it. And I discovered also through archives, through reading financial statements, through reading correspondence, two really significant transformations in the structure of American Jewish philanthropy. And the book really charts these transformations. Um, one has to do with the growth of endowments the shift from a capital model that was really about intake and circulation in a very quick kind of fashion, right? Happening really on a kind of annual cycle, money coming in, money moving out to a model where money was held and invested for future use and, and growth. So that was the first transformation that was really exciting and interesting to me. And the second had to do with the ways that individualized giving came to replace more collective modes of giving. Neither of these two shifts that I trace in the book, um, I would say are entirely unprecedented in the span of Jewish history, in the span of other histories of, of giving, of charity, of tzedakah, whatever you will. Um, but the way that they developed and their significance were really closely tied to changes in American political economy, in the policies and the laws that governed politics, that governed the economy of, of this country. And the book then talks about how these transformations intersected with broad political and economic shifts in the United States, really coming down to what ends up being, I think, the nub or the heart of the book, which is this question about the contestation between models of capitalism and models of democracy and where philanthropy rests in a kind of balance of these two different pieces 
that have been so essential to American liberalism, capitalism and democracy. And what I found is that over the course of the 20th century, and really specifically after World War II, the balance that you know, philanthropy sort of held in that contestation tended more and more toward prioritizing a capitalist logic. Um, and, and the book charts that in various ways and looks at different political and cultural attributes of that movement. So let me stop there before I read you the entire book as an audience. <laughs> and I'm sure you have responses. Yeah, so, so it's like if I, if I follow, there's kind of a number of, of major arguments here. One is that kind of the American political and economic system facilitates the accumulation of, of enormous quantities of capital. And that, in a way, changes how philanthropy operates because people accumulate those endowments and that. that the other thing is that that accumulation of capital makes your, your, your content, that that makes uh, the communities less democratic, in a way, because the person who owns that capital has, a, has an enormous influence over the political system and therefore doesn't need to use any democratic means to do it. There's a lot. Just the, the caveat to the yeah. little last piece of that last sentence you said is that the public also invests in that person who has this enormous amount of capital and decides to put it into the philanthropic system, right? As, as you know, through tax deductions and exemptions. Right. It's, right. The, so there's, the tax right. exemptions, in a way, subsidize, indirectly subsidize philanthropy. That, that, that we know. Now, but, but then you go one step further and you talk mm -hmm. about Jewish philanthropic complex in the model of that speech for Eisenhower of, you know, the industrial defense complex and whatever. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, I think things take a little bit of a nefarious tone. I mean, the idea of a complex is, you know, when you read it, makes you makes it sound like a, like a cabal. And I wonder why you choose that, that term mm -hmm. and that connotation. I mean, you know it has that connotation. Mm -hmm. Right. So just, just so listeners are clear, so from that point on, when it takes um, what Andres described as a nefarious turn, I, I use that term, I think, on page two. So um, what we're learning is that from the point on, it's, it's, it's quite early, in fact. You know, it's not a late term. No, but, but it does. But, but then you go back and you start more being more descriptive, not so judgmental. But, but it does color the book with a, as a critique. When, mm -hmm. when you already call it a complex, it's already a critique. Right. In a certain so, way, for a certain sensitivities, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So, yes, right. So, so why did I decide to use that term? And what I make, I, I hope, clear in the introduction is it was really for, for three primary reasons that the word complex, right, was, I thought, the right word to use to describe the intersection of all of these different capital forces, political forces, policies, and different kinds of Jewish communal ideals and aspirations and concerns. And so the term itself, right, from Eisenhower's 1961 speech about the military-industrial complex was about a kind of recursive of a feedback loop, right, where different inputs come in that have vested interests in outcomes and create a kind of loop or a cycle where it's very hard to interrupt flows of power and where 
the, the way that power operates comes to appear quite natural or inevitable, right? As if there's not a different way, there's not a different choice, right? That was really, you know, his goal in trying to draw attention to this, to say that there are all these groups that are interested in this power structure remaining as it is, and that there, there instead should be a way that we think about the history of how, how power operates. Another piece of why complex was compelling to me is because it's a very complicated world, right? And I talk about this in the introduction with acronyms and regulatory infrastructure and all of this sort of complication of how this uh, landscape of American philanthropy works and American Jewish philanthropy. It is incredibly complicated. And part of how complicated it is, even just the acronyms, again, kind of creates this sense of a structure that's a bit impenetrable and is hard to kind of pull apart or, or understand. And of course, the last part is that when we talk about a complex, there's a psychological dimension to it, right? That, you know, I think a great deal of what I'm talking about, the period I really am focusing on after World War II, has to do with a psychological vulnerability that American Jews felt about their future and about what was going to protect them after the devastations of the Second World War. So for all of those reasons, the word, word complex is really compelling to me. And I also make pretty clear that the idea of, of the American Jewish philanthropic complex was that it itself was woven into this much broader American state complex about finance and capitalism. So- right. You're right, but it is meant as a critique. But the critique is that we have seen it as this tightly woven kind of fabric. And that, you know, when, and I've talked to people, I'm not alone in having, you know, like, is it okay that there's these few families and they have a lot of wealth and they're calling a lot of shots? A lot of people say, no, it's not, it's not great, but it's kind of how things are, you know, money and power operate together. And that's just like timeless, right? And the point is to be able to say that there are all these different pieces that are intersecting and there were choices made and decisions made and we should be able to pull this apart. That in fact, it's, right. it's, it's not that. So I, you know, I hear what you're saying and somebody could decide out of hand to dismiss the argument because they don't like that terminology. And, you know, that's, that's it's not, it, yeah, it's not dismissing the argument is the, the notion that the, you know, working with funders, there's one key value and one key word that that comes all the time that I that I didn't see reflected so much in in the tone of your book, which is the idea of generosity. Yes, they're accumulating a lot of wealth, but nothing in the law forces them to give it away. And that kind of shocked me a little bit. Like you know, it give it gave an edge to the argument that wasn't softened by this value of generosity. And I'm, listen, I'm a product of, of philanthropic generosity. I grew up in a, in a poor family. I, I, all the opportunities I had in life were thanks to philanthropy. So I'm reading a book and I'm saying, well, wait a second, these people do a ton of good and nothing forces them to. And I, I wonder if in the critique, you're not losing sight of that, that ultimately people want to do good. I think you're very right that there are so many people who are involved in this work who really are driven by an impulse to help people and to be generous. And if I were to write a book about the particular individuals, I think that that would be a really important component of it. 
right? Why, you know, why are you deciding to do this with your money? I think in writing a book that is about a system, it is not to say that those individual motivations are unimportant, but it is to say, should people have that amount of money so that they can be so incredibly magnanimous with it, so generous with it, right? Should it be the case that somebody has the ability to write a check for $100 million to um, get out the vote in a certain state at the drop of a hat? But, but there is where you're, you're kind of mixing apple and oranges, in, in my view. As communal professionals, as somebody working in philanthropy, people already have the money. So attacking, quote unquote, philanthropy is probably the wrong target. In other words, if you want to take issue with the economic system, the fiscal policies that allow somebody to accumulate billions, that's totally fine. But I'm dealing with people once they have the billions. So should I say I don't want it because the system that gave it to you or that let you accumulate it is a bad system? You know what I'm trying to say? Like critiquing philanthropy as a proxy for wealth accumulation appears to me as, as an inversion of the pyramid in ways that are not very helpful to the people that can benefit from that philanthropy. I think that's fair to talk about in a, you know, in a very practical sense, right? Like the money is there and now shouldn't we just focus on how that money can be spent in the best way and the most just way to fulfill the best goals for the public good. And that would all be fine. And I would agree with you if it weren't for the case that my historical research and the research of others who've looked at American philanthropy more generally, in fact, shows that these patterns of wealth accumulation and the kind of political will to think about economics in this kind of financialized way, right, of kind of aggregation of capital and the public subsidy of private entities to control what happens with not just private property, but with property earmarked as operating for the public good. All of that is tied together. So if we could separate philanthropy from the policies and the history and the politics of wealth accumulation and how it has worked and the kind of historical transformations that have enabled that to happen, then I would absolutely say that intellectually anyway, these are two separate things and it, it, it does not make good intellectual sense to talk about them together, historically speaking. However, because these things are absolutely inseparable, historically, they are right? It does not, to me, make sense to say, well, that's, that ship has sailed. For example, you know, it was not always the case that it was a foregone conclusion that the way that it, tax exemptions and deductions work today are the way that they should work, right? It was not always the case that private foundations should have a requirement to spend out 5%. Right? It was at a point the case that some senators were arguing that all private foundations should be um, limited in terms of their lifespan, right? that they should be limited to 25 years. Right? All of these different deliberations about how philanthropy works were totally tied into deliberations about what the market meant, what property meant, deliberations about um, the relationship between a political process and the economics of capitalism. So 
what I take issue with is actually like the very premise that we should be able to pull these two apart. So I take issue with that as a historian, right? And that's where I'm on the firmest ground saying, uh, it's impossible to understand philanthropy without talking about these policies of wealth accumulation. They're inseparable. I think on some level, there needs to be a reckoning about the ways in which the system of philanthropy itself is completely involved in a system of this kind of wealth accumulation and a prioritization of capitalism over certain aspirations of democracy. Well, from my perspective, I do take funders that already have accumulated wealth and I work with them that instead of spending it on another yacht, they give it to people that need it or they help the communities. That's an argument that I can work with, that I can influence. Whereas if I get into the, to the argument of how philanthropy is a reflection of inequality in society, intellectually is a good argument. You know, it's a good, it's a good conversation to have from the intellectual level, but I'm not changing anybody's lives by doing that. I mean, meaning if I want to tackle that issue, I'll go to a political rally, I create a political party, I propose legislation that changes the estate tax, whatever. But in a philanthropic conversation, to mix it all the time sounds to me like, like a guarantee for immobility because I, reach, I always reach a point in which I can't change that. I kind of work with billionaires that come to me and say, how, how can we do good with the money we accumulate? That's something I can deal with. If I get into a conversation of how can we deconstruct a system that is structurally allows for you know, accumulation of wealth, I stop. I mean, I, there's nothing I can do on that. I mean, at least from my perspective as a philanthropic organization, politicians can, policymakers can, but I can't. So to have that conversation sounds to me like, yeah, intellectually interesting, but not, not really helping. Again, I, I get that. I really hear what you're saying about that. And one thing I would love to push more people to think about is how even that kind of very practical seeming work is a political choice. It's making up a, a political statement. It's affecting how power operates, right? It's yeah. involved in federations have been involved in tax lobbying and legislative work because of their desire to protect the way philanthropy operates in certain ways. All of this is very, very political already. Yeah, but you're also making a generalization here that, you know, the Jewish Funders Network, we have 2,000 members. There's everything there. There's people that believe in high taxes, you know, and advocate for high taxes, and the people that are libertarian and believe in no taxes at all. So when you say there is a political activism or political decisions, you're generalizing as if all the philanthropic communities align after something, which is not the case, <laughs> you know, and he advocates for very different policies than the Koch brothers, you know, when they are funded, they're billionaires funding programs to limit campaign finance. So it, in other words, this idea that going back to the notion of a complex, it seems that like, it makes me sound Leavdil. I know it's not the same, but it makes me sound a little bit of the protocols, right? The Jews are deciding together and these people never participate in that any board meeting in any Jewish organization. We can't agree on anything. How we can agree on a plan to control the world. So here's a, kind of the same thing. Funders can't agree on anything and they advocate for different things. So this notion that collectively the philanthropic community is trying to maintain its privilege, as it were, 
again, it, it sounds like a, a nice conceptual idea, but it's not really the way things work in practice. Something that's said to me from time to time, and it, at first it gave me a chuckle, and then I was kind of perplexed, and now I think it's kind of a great disavowal, is, well, we're a Jewish federation, we're some kind of Jewish organization, and I know I'm doing well when I have the left and the right yelling at me, right? Like, that shows me that I'm not political, I'm not taking a side, that there's this kind of way in which I can sort of step above the fray of it. But the point is not really whether or not these organizations are politically neutral when it comes to partisan politics, right? The point has to do with how these different philanthropic organizations, whether it's the Koch brothers, whether it's Soros, whether it's Bloomberg, whatever it might be, what is the kind of structure that authorizes the investment of public dollars in private decision-making about where property should go and where resources should go? And in what ways is that empowering a public? And in what ways is it disempowering a public? And insofar as we say, as American Jews, think that a robust democracy is important, right? And that's a value proposition. We might not all agree on that, right? But insofar as we do, then to the extent that this philanthropic structure, I don't mean the individuals, I don't mean if it's left or right or whatever, but to what extent does this structure itself limit the expansion of a, of a basic, robust democratic ideal? There's something that, that struck me in your book. There is a sort of an unstated nostalgia for the old times of the Federation where things seem to be more democratic. And I, having worked at a Federation and knowing the Federation, I contest that fact. I don't think that by having more people involved, you're more democratic necessarily. Like federations are not democratic. You know, they do great work, don't get me wrong, but they're not. They're not more democratic than philanthropy. In some cases, they involve more people. In some cases, they don't. You know, boards are self-appointed. It's not that people vote for who's in the board of a federation. So I'm wondering if there is some sort of nostalgia for a time that never existed in a way. <laughs> I don't feel that nostalgia. What I was interested in was the fact that up to a certain point, many Jewish federations included in their bylaws actual stipulations against holding, you know, what were sort of termed excessive reserve funds, what we would call endowments. And that was very notable to me. Why was that the case? Why was it important to the boards of these federations and to the givers, to the donors, that the federations not hold those kinds of reserves? But, but let me interrupt you for a second there, because I think, I think that we're talking about two different things. One is the day that federations and foundations and everybody started to accumulate money. In other words, the amount of money you have in the bank has nothing to do with how democratic is your operation. You can have a lot of money. You can have a big endowment and be very democratic. You can have no endowment at all ah. and be okay. and be non-democratic. Um, so not exactly, I think, right? So one of the byproducts of saying that there was not going to be the accumulation of reserve funds was that the way that the process worked was that a giver every year would give, would expect that money would be allocated and would decide whether to give or not based upon whether that money seemed to go in the places that made sense to that donor, right? So it's part of the way that a donor was like enfranchised 
in a sense, was because there was this kind of revolving door system. So right, the, 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 donor voted, the donor voted with his wallet kind of thing. Yes, in a sense with his wallet, but also had the ability to say, you know, as, as long as it seems like this institution is going the way that I want this institution to go, then money in, money out, and, and this is how things can go. And the kind of hesitance that the boards of Jewish federations had in the earlier part of the 20th century to creating endowments was they didn't want to be, quote unquote, these kind of charity trust organizations, right? They didn't want to be seen as just building capital for the sake of building capital and having that kind of power. In fact, they wanted to be seen as this place where lots of people from the community felt like they were able to invest in what was going on there and every year would sort of see the fruits of that. And there were all sorts of ways in which the process and the practices didn't align with the best practices of of democracy. Like, you're absolutely right about that. But it is striking to me that as endowment growth increased, the ways in which individuals, particular individuals with a lot of wealth, were able to have very clear and explicit different channels of power, dollar for dollar, than other kinds of donors became stark. And this is not my observation. In fact, this was the observation of the folks in the 1950s and 1960s and even a little before in federation systems and other systems who were saying, please, we don't want to have these kinds of reserves building up and we don't want these different restricted funds and we don't want these big endowments because we think that that will change the culture, right? I mean, that was their observation about what would happen. So I, I don't think there's any reason to think that, that this is something that we just whole cloth would go back to and everything would be solved, right? But there are questions about what were the decisions and choices and points of inflection when these power dynamics changed. You're missing the other side of the argument that endowments are really a lifeline for many organizations and they improve the work of the nonprofit system in ways that are like they give them visibility, they give them sustainability over time, they make them less vulnerable to a bad economic year. We see now with COVID how, you know, without batting an eyelid, UJ New York can take $10 million out of its endowment and do urgent stuff that it wouldn't have been able to do. As running nonprofits, I can tell you that uh, I love endowments. I love having an endowment and the possibility of being less vulnerable to the whims of donors. So in a way, endowments play both ways. They may expand the power of certain individuals, but they also give the nonprofit a lot of independence. They decrease the power of a specific donor because I don't have to submit to your wishes of the year or to your changing whims because I have an endowment. So you don't want to give me money. Fine, I lose my endowment. So they cut both ways in a way. You know, I understand. I um, always tell my kids I want them to save money, right? I mean, you know, like for the reason you're saying, right? Like, so I, I absolutely understand that. And there are ways in which they give people, uh, give organizations a sense of freedom. I think to me, again, the historical question is what are the different policies and practices that have allowed endowments to build to the extent that they have built, right? And is there a point when endowment building for the sake of endowment building 
and creating structures like donor advice funds and supporting foundations and everything else that give individuals a great deal of control within the structure of public charitable endowments? Are there ways that we need to ask questions about what kind of public investment is being put into these kinds of private endowments that have have no particular, in the case of public charities, no particular mandates about how they're spent, when they're spent, how they're spent, they have to be 501c3, but beyond that, about when they're spent, about the amount of allocations of any given year. This is money that, in a sense, is standing on the sidelines in a lot of ways. Okay, but, right? and oh, so, okay, but then, so those are right. questions, I think, that that certainly need to be asked. And then just to kind of close the loop, they're also connected to questions about economic inequality. When you have so many people who have so little, and then you have a lot of money that is held in accumulated funds, and these were decisions that were made over time, right? And, and more and more favorable tax policies to allow that to happen. If we also say that a value of a democracy is not to have radical economic inequality, I'm right. not sure how these two things align. The way I see it is that there is a tax code, and within that tax code, I got to try to benefit, to do things that benefit what I want to do, which is give more money and give more money more efficiently. I don't write the tax code. But we, we have to agree to disagree on that one. <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I think that you make a good point in terms of there's something in the inequality, in the disparity of wealth that could threaten democracy in the, in the long term if, if it hasn't already. But my point was that philanthropy is, is a consequence of that, many stages separated from that rather than the cause of it. Yeah, it's part of the same construct, but it's Wait, but wait, it's did you say it's part of the same complex? Is that what I heard Construct, construct. <laughs> I know, I'm messing <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, let's try to be more, more productive in a way. So something we do agree is that to have more democratic participations in the philanthropic process is a good thing. Now, let me share with you a conundrum here. Many of the most innovative programs in philanthropy, the most transformational programs, happened precisely because there was no democratic process, meaning democratic processes are not really conducive to risk-taking, you know, and understandably so. Like, you know, you, you get a board of a federation that has a fiduciary responsibility towards thousands of donors. You know, you can't just do something risky like birthright. Birthright could happen, or if you don't like birthright, let's pick another example, right? Because funders did not have the freedom, quote-unquote, to innovate without going through a public process. And we like that. We like for people to be entrepreneurial and take risks and do things. And, and it's not that federations are risk averse, it's that constitutionally, the way they're built doesn't allow for certain things to sort of emerge from a federation board because that's the way they're built. So how can we manage to do both? Yeah, I mean, and, and this is often the kind of dichotomy that's drawn between like foundations and any kind of federated giving that foundations are more entrepreneurial and nimble and quick and and whatever else so i to me the question is about the participation of people 
who are ostensibly meant to be helped by philanthropic endeavors, right? And so maybe that moves the lens a little bit. So it's not necessarily, you know, okay, how many board members can we get in the room? And if we pass that threshold, whatever the minion would be, then, then yeah. we have enough, then we can say it's democratic. I think that some of the most exciting work that's been done in this space has been around ideas of participatory grant making, which is, has a spectrum of ways it can work, but fundamentally is guided by the principle that when you are thinking about how to allocate money philanthropically, unless you include the stakeholders who are part of whatever the problem that might be solved, unless you really not just include them, like, let me do a focus group, but let me pretend or actually acknowledge that on some level, this money is theirs, right? This is the public's money. And let's think about how we can engage communities who we are trying to help with our philanthropic good in the actual process. Now, there are questions about, well, what is, you know, what's the role of the expert in that? And not everybody has the same access to knowledge in the same way. And lots of smart people are thinking about this. But I think instead of getting stuck in the sort of like federation versus foundation, if we think about participation of stakeholders and we think about opening up to a diversity of Jews, in this case, to be the stakeholders, then we're, I think, much more likely to go down a path where we can talk about philanthropy operating in tandem with democratic aspirations the more that you can bring more people into conversations about how resources are allocated and the more that there can be an attempt to make it the case, not just seem as if it is the case, but be the case that there is not just one power that controls those resources. You know, I think that there's, look, you can't have the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Like this is, seems to be kind of a theme of what you're saying. And I do agree with it that insofar as there can be more people who feel like those resources are not just in the hands of the private foundation or not just in the hands of the board of a federation, but that these are really the public's resources. I think it's, it's more likely to be a process, whether or not it's effective, and it depends how you measure efficacy in terms of the return on, on the philanthropic investment. That's a separate question. Whether or not it's effective in terms of people feeling as if they are part of this project of trying to solve problems, I think that the more that there can be true power sharing, then there's not going to be that same sense of, you know, at the end of the day, someone else is making the decision. And so I'm going to be fighting with everybody else to gain favor from that person who's making the decision. That's a whole change of culture. It really demands a different way of thinking about whose resources these philanthropic resources are. If we really believe that they belong to the community, then my contention that they are part of and fueling this kind of wealth inequality would be much less strong. The issues you're bringing in are dealt at the Jewish Founders Network virtually all the time, where we produced, for example, we tried to produce a, a sort of an ethical guide for funders power management. We deal a lot with the issue of funders and power. We have a whole system of training uh, or working with foundation professionals for them to understand the power imbalances between grantee and, and grant maker. So there is a big opening to learn. So I guess that we're sort of touching different parts of the elephant. Like what I see is a philanthropic community that 
wants to do good and wants to self-regulate in the in the best possible ways by learning how to manage in a more ethical way by by including people like the type of stuff you mentioned about participatory grant making you know our discussions that happen in most foundation boards and staffs that i work with so i think that willingness to learn exists uh, but it comes from a place of fundamentally what we do is good and it's good and it helps people and i think that the way i would phrase it is not we sort of building stuff to preserve our assets is we feel a responsibility to help. And this is how the American system allows us to do it, which is a different frame of mind that's saying we're going to participate into a complex that allows us to, to, to sort of accumulate enormous amounts of, of wealth. I mean, it doesn't negate it, but it's sort of the mindset of people is, is different. It comes from the place of wanting to do good and wanting to preserve a community that is vital and vibrant and as participatory as these things can be. Anything that you have seen in your work, in your research, that gives you hope, that makes you proud of the work that philanthropists and funders are doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, so part of what I did, and I think it's how we first met, is when I was working on this book, I just started talking to people today who work in American Jewish philanthropy, not because I thought I was going to be able to include, you know, I'm not an ethnographer, I'm a historian, but it just seemed like I needed to educate myself about how people, you know, who are working in the elephant, right, as you say, yeah. um, you know, what what is their perspective? And I, I would take these notes after each conversation, and I then looked back at all of it, it was like a hundred something conversations, and each one I would say, you know, this person is so smart, and they're so really aware of all of these different dynamics. And it's really important for me to remember how much people working in the system, and you know, look, these were mainly people who um, you might call the philanthropists, right? Who, who are yeah. the stewards of the system, right? They're, they're not the philanthropists themselves. But conversation after conversation, realizing that the people who are working at that strata, who are involved in this system, in this complex, as I say, are thinking self-critically, are asking hard questions, are using some of what they have to try to push back when they feel like they see a power imbalance, when they feel concerned about how this system is working. And then, you know, people would also say there are concerns I have and, and I don't know what I can do about them. And it's important I have my job and there's only so much I can say or, or whatever the case might be. But it was incredibly hopeful and inspiring to me to see that this is not a system of yes men and, and people just sort of like marching in line, that there is a whole internal kind of conversation about what's going on in philanthropy. So that was something that I thought was just incredibly hopeful. And then the other thing I'll mention is, you know, in particular meeting certain people who are um, young people who are thinking about family wealth that they have inherited and asking some really in my mind, profound questions about sexism, about racism, about economic inequality, and what their role should be standing, you know, right on the edge of inheriting a great deal of money. These were Jewish people that I was speaking to, right, from families, and saying that they want to do something different so that this money is not 
continuing to participate in systems that they believe it had participated in before. Um, and so a new generation asking questions differently is heartening only because it adheres to my historical orthodoxy, which is that things change. Thank you so much. This Thank was you. thought-provoking yeah. and provocative, and I hope we can talk more about these important issues in the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much for inviting me to be on this. Thanks so much to Professor Lila Corwin-Berman for taking the time to speak with me. You can find her new book, The American Jewish Philanthropic Complex, The History of a Multi-Billion Dollar Institution at press.princeton.edu and most major booksellers. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. I leave you with a quote from great thinker and psychoanalyst Eric Fromm, who said, man's deepest need is to overcome his separateness to free himself from the bondage of his loneliness. So free yourself from loneliness, connect with others, keep giving and connect with us for our next episode of What Gives.